Hello everyone, welcome to episode 2 of Almost Infamous here on the Hollywood Greg Podcast Network. So in the year 2000, I drove across the country alone and needed to get to Los Angeles in 30 days to start the Semester in LA program for Columbia College Chicago. Little did I know I was going to meet such interesting people in that class. One of them was one of my screenwriting instructors, Craig Gore. I was all ready to write movies and become part of the Hollywood machine. Well, he ended up becoming part of the Hollywood machine as one of the top crime show writers in the industry. I ended up going on to being a journalist in entertainment and wrote for Daily Variety and tons of other magazines. Craig Gore's past is a fascinating one. I knew Craig wasn't the first person to turn a troubled past into a lucrative writing career, but nobody has done it quite like Craig. Finally, I had to sit him down at his wonderful new house in West Hollywood and find out once and for all what the real story is. Craig Gore has proven two things. And those are doing crime does not pay. But writing crime does pay. So you've had a pretty rough past that you've come from out in the Carolinas when you were growing up. Why don't you tell me a little bit about it? Oh, origin story. Yeah, so my parents were 17, got pregnant with me. My dad was a dishwasher in a seafood restaurant. My mom was a waitress because uh, it was my dad's family from the Carolinas. And uh, my grandfather, my mom's uh, dad, who became like the most important figure to me. I have this name tattooed on my arm. It was like really supportive later on. He just he told my dad, it was like, you have to join the military or go to college. And if you go to college, I should pay for it. Get, you know, go to the military, get a, get a, but you got to do something. You got to wash dishes. And my dad, not being an intellectual, um, it's so funny how fucking different we are. Um, chose the military, uh-huh. and he was, you know, he's kind of like a jockey guy. So he became a corpsman in the Navy, which is the medic for the Marines. That's like the one guy that the Marines, the Navy pe- person that the Marines respect. And he got stationed at Camp Lejeune, which is in Jacksonville, which is like an hour and a half north of Myrtle Beach. Mm-hmm. So we moved up there, and. We did on the, but he didn't want to live on base, and so we lived on an island called Topsail Island. It's like 30 miles long, and like half a mile wide, a barrier island, and it was going to be, it was a choice between that and Cape Canaveral for the space shuttle launches, mm-hmm. and they, they chose Florida, because actually that island in North Carolina has more hurricanes. So, uh, but they ended up letting it be uh, populated, like in the 60s. So it was like a fishing village, military right. dudes, rednecks, you know, and vacation homes. So we like lived in trailers, we lived in beach houses, super cheap. Then when I was, but my dad was very abusive to my mom. And when I was five and my brother was two, she left. I left this with him. And so we were like these kind of feral kids. My dad, in a way, was still in his early 20s. You know, would get off from work at the base and go drinking and drugging and whatever. And he'd come home at you know, 9, 10, 11 at night, just pass it on the couch. So me and my brother would kind of have to fend for ourselves. 
we would break into vacation homes and like break into freezers and refrigerators and stuff and you know, get frozen pizzas or whatever and we would, that's what we would eat for dinner. The gas and the electric got shut off so much that we would have to like live by candlelight a lot. Oh man. And the gas was terrible because in the winter there was no hot water but all the vacation homes had those little outside showers so right. you come in from the salt water you'd rinse off and go in and we would go fucking we would take cold showers but they only had cold water. So we'd be like I'm like you know, fucking seven years old taking a cold shower before the bus is picking me up. Jesus. So it was kind of like this crazy existence, you know, and we were very isolated. We're on this island with our father. It's just us three. And he was very abusive to us because he took it out on us when my mom left. When I was 10, my brother was seven, he got out of the Navy. His dream was to open up his own bar restaurant. So he opened up this, bought an old surf shop. Right in the dunes, and it's called the Rusty Scupper. It was like surf and turf, but we worked there. We were like kind of like slaves. Like we were there 67 hours a week. He'd take us out of school. There was a, an old Caprice Classic, which was one of our old cars. Oh, Lord. And we would sleep in the back. So we'd work till 1 in the morning or 2 in the morning with the bar shut down because we'd wash dishes and clean up. Fuck, and then we would sleep till like 6 and then get on the bus. Not very, not very fun. When I was 13, my dad went to prison for manslaughter. He got in a lot of bar fights. There'd be you know, Marines there or mm-hmm. redneck fishermen or whatever. And he had a, another Navy buddy who was this kind of tough dude who was kind of the bouncer. And they kicked this dude out. He really drunk. And he kind of threatened my dad. I'll kill your kids and burn your fucking bar down. Kicked him out, fuck off, whatever. The guy walks down the road. That's like a midnight or something, from what I remember. It ended up being like 2, 3 in the morning. He ends up running this guy over, killing him. And it was a Saturday, I guess. It was my dad's 30th birthday. He uh, was gone because he was arrested, but there was a, his Toyota Corolla was there and had a windshield with the head. You could see a hole with the, with the head and, went, and it was all covered in blood and the front was crumpled. But he ended up doing six months in prison, like regular, and he did six months like work release where he would get out and work construction jobs in the daytime. So he did about a year. And during that time, it was like the time for me and my brother to like run away and like mm-hmm. try to escape. So we... I was 13, my brother was 10, we ran away to New York City. So my grandfather, that I spoke of earlier, uh-huh. was like the one family member that was always in t- constant touch with us and gave a shit, and he was just wrapping up his career as a commercial pilot for United. And he had a house in Cleveland, but an apartment in New York, because it was like his hub. He did like big triple seven planes. We went up there, had to sleep on the roof for the first two nights in New York City. Like I'm 13 years old, from North Carolina. Wow. It's crazy. And I remember me and my brother went to a fucking street fair. We were in New York for three hours. And I see a little Puerto Rican guy stab a huge white weightlifter dude with a fucking uh, uh, knife. Jesus. And it was like the cops came. And me and my brother are, are like running down a tunnel under like a park bridge. And there's like police dogs chasing us. And I'm like, I'm three hours in New York. And like, this is what happened? <laughs> no, we went to go get some fucking candy or some shit. I love New York. Was, I know. <laughs> and I was like, so when my grandfather came back, um, like two days later, you know, I was like, oh my God, you guys are here. And he, t- you know, he wanted to take care of us. He was just like, just retiring. So we ended up going to Cleveland to his main house for the summer. So there's this township on the edge of Cleveland called Sugar Heights. It's the first integrated suburb in America with mm-hmm. black professionals, doctors, lawyers, with like white professionals, beautiful homes. It's kind of sucks because it's decimated after the financial crisis. Right. You know, it just, it's all beautiful three-story homes and and you know, great school district and parks. So it was kind of really nice to us. Like we were living in fucking trailers. Mm-hmm. My grandfather had like a three-story home. Like it was, you know, it was like a mansion. 
And uh, my best buddy was this guy named Reggie, this black, black kid who was a skateboarder, got me into skateboarding actually. And he actually loved the cult. He loved the cult. And the guy got me at like 13, you know. And uh, we enrolled into school. And I was going to start in ninth grade and being in Cleveland. And we were going to start this new life. But my dad got out of prison and he insisted that we come back. He was so mad that my grandfather was trying to take us. And my grandfather actually hired a lawyer and he said, you know what? Um, the, mom let, the mom left at five, gave up full custody. Doesn't matter if this guy's a killer or is an ex-con. He has the custody. You could be charged with kidnapping. So my grandfather had to drive us back down there. Wow. You know, my dad promised, fucking, I'm not going to fucking beat the kids anymore. I'm not, not going to do this. I won't, you know, fucking, I cleaned up in prison. I'm not going to do any more drugs. He was so fucking, you know, of course, I'm sitting there when he's promising my grandfather. Right. Knowing what's going to happen. And my grandfather, you know, has to drive away the next day and go back to Cleveland. And two weeks later, fucking, it was like, it was worse. Because it's like, I'm going to punish you. Right. For making me look bad. I had turned 16. I had worked all fucking summer. Mm-hmm. right in the restaurant getting paid three bucks an hour and he didn't pay me he just put it on a thing and he goes at the end of the summer because I turned 16 in September I'm going to count up all your money and you can go buy whatever car you like and I'm like fucking dude I'm going to get a Camaro I'm going to get some fucking badass right hell yeah and I have like four or five G hell fucking, yeah dude my birthday comes my dad pulls up in a fucking turquoise BW bug, Jesus Christ, that he bought from some surfer guy, oh, you know, um, who had like a VW shop. It was the ugliest fucking thing. It was a low rider, and he goes, "Here's your car," and it was like twenty five hundred bucks. Jesus, like that's half the money. Yeah, we're gonna. So I'm like, I had no choice, so I have to drive this fucking piece of shit. Oh, it's no. so hilarious. And I'm like driving to high school with like a low rider turquoise bug, listening to fucking like cor- corrosion of conformity, you know, like I, people don't even know who the fuck I was. But uh, it was hilarious. My first car was a Gran Torino. So <laughs> That's I, cool. I, I beat you. <laughs> but then, after that, I got stuck with a Volkswagen Golf. So I, okay. I, I then had to downgrade to shit. So oh, moving on. Those are beautiful cars. <laughs> so, no, God, horrible. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. So I was, so like a week later, I turned 16. And I was like, yeah, I was in the punk rock and metal and fucking rap. Uh-huh. And I had a Crossbird. You know, and I was like, you know kind of the size I am almost now, but skinny, you know? Uh-huh. And, uh, but my dad would, like, beat me, like, break eardrums and, like, punch me. It wasn't, like, spanking shit. And he comes in at my fucking room a week after I turned 16, and he goes, I'll never forget this. He goes, you're getting too big. You're starting to fight back. Get your fucking shit and get out of here. You're a man now. And I, dude, I had an agnostic front fucking poster mm-hmm. and, like, a duffel bag of shit. That's it. And my shitty fucking... Wow. And my, and my tapes. You're like, on your own. That's yeah, it. Yeah, and my, and my shitty fucking BW. So I fucking, Shit. So, this whole time, I should say, because this is also about creative endeavor, the only thing that kind of kept me sane through all this was reading, right? So my dad was a very hands-on dude. Mm-hmm. He built surfboards. He, he would go to construction sites and he would steal plywood and he would make dog houses. Right, little mini miniature houses look like beach houses and sell them to tourists in the summer. He did all these side jobs besides the Navy or the bar. He could fix a fucking engine. Right? And my brothers the same. My brother like fucking could take an engine out of a dumpster and make a dirt bike. Right, but like I couldn't do shit. Right, you know what I mean? I could barely fucking use a piece of sandpaper. But I always love reading and writing. And you know the teacher would say, write a three-page book report on you know, you know, red badge of courage. And I'd come in with like a twenty-page report. 
or write a three-page short story. I remember once it was ninth grade, my teacher said, write out a short story. And I came in and I had 57 pages. And she made me get up and read the whole thing for the whole hour. Holy and it was shit. funny because it was like, I was kind of this outsider kid, but everybody in class kind of liked it because they didn't do shit. They sat back and like, I just read for the whole hour. So I kind of knew I had an inclination to that. Mm-hmm. I was writing short stories. I was reading a lot, I think more than the average kid at 16. I was way into fucking... You know, punk bands, metal bands, rap bands, shit with like messages, you know what I mean? And kind of like finding myself. Name some groups. Oh, fuck, man. Where we listening to? Front, all uh-huh. the New York hardcore stuff. Uh huh. You know, Slayer, COC, mm-hmm. uh, fucking Nuclear Assault, Sacred Reich, all mm-hmm. these bands that like, are, uh, Testament, uh-huh. bands that came out and talked about like the environment. Right. You know, to fucking first NWA, Public Enemy. Eric B. and Rock Kim, all that stuff. You know, and then I, mm-hmm. I also, it was kind of weird because I loved all these different things. And I loved, loved The Cure, Smiths, you know, all that kind of like Susie Nabanshees. Yeah, because you and I have hung out at 80s places. You're oh, in the totally. 80s music big time. Yeah, so I had like, a, and I even, I, I even love like Waylon Jennings and kind of old school badass country shit. So right, right. And I love classical music. So I like all that stuff. Uh-huh. And, you know, so like I wasn't pigeonholed. And growing up in North Carolina, and it, I moved to a bigger town. It was kind of funny though because when I went to the bigger town, I suddenly became the, one of the coolest kids. You know what I mean? And like I started a metal band and like, you know, mm-hmm. dyed my hair and was like black and was like, you know, fucking wore like fucking Pantera shirts. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I was kind of cool. It was weird. Um, and yes, in my, very quickly I traded in that BW bug for a fucking Subaru. <laughs> Me and my brother, like, my dad would take us to these, to like construction sites. And we'd steal plywood. We'd steal materials. My dad would use it to build stuff. Sell, you know, dog houses to sell to tourists. To put add-ons on our, a shed on our fucking house or whatever. So I kind of learned from that. And also, me and my brother breaking into homes when we were young to steal food. There mm-hmm. were so many vacation homes on those barrier islands. Not just Topsail Island, but Wrightsville Beach. Topsail. Figure eight. Fucking, you just go down the list. There's all these barrier islands. All the way to the Outer Banks. And we're like, all winter long, they sit there with fucking TVs, VCRs. Uh, you know, full stock bars, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Man, fuck this! I should be a thief." <laughs> a thief so, is born. A thief is born. And I was like, "I don't want to have a regular job anymore. This is fucking for chumps." I honestly thought when I was seventeen that I would never see twenty-one. I'm like, my parents, dude, never once said, "Where are you going to go to college?" I never took the SATs. Mm-hmm. I never. I didn't know what SAT was. Right. Like, it was, there was no preparation. Mm-hmm. Neither of my parents went to college. Right. My mom, I think, got like a six-month real estate license that she never used. Right. And it was like, my dad just thought, like, we'd just work for him, or take the bar over, and fuck, I don't even know, fucking know what my mom was thinking. But, not, like, that was not even anything to me. So I wasn't even raised to go anywhere. So I had a, my uh, one buddy, Paul, who was a high school friend. Another buddy, uh, Tim, who was a drummer in my metal band. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my buddy, Mike, who had done a year... So now we were like 18. He'd done a year in prison in 1990, 91, because he had a Suzuki Samurai's chop shop. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, Suzuki Samurai's oh, yeah. were like the fucking the Priuses of the day. Right? Yeah. They were every, yeah. yeah, and they were like these little Jeeps. All, mm-hmm. you know, fucking, you know, college girls loved them, and they were so, they were Tonka toys, dude. They oh, were so yeah. easy to fucking steal, oh, yeah, yeah. chop up. Yep. And so he did a year in prison, and I remember um, me and Paul and my buddy Tim. My buddy Tim worked at a welding company. Mm-hmm. In the daytime, he was a welder. Mm-hmm. At night, he had the keys. And guess what's in there? 
oxyacetylene torches. <laughs> oh, man. That cut through fucking steel. And we would take the torches at night, cut through shit, and fucking, you know, steal stuff. And I remember fucking, it was three of us, and then we're driving down the street, the main street of Market Street in Winton, and I see Mike Cox, the fourth guy, with his fucking white plastic trash bag, with his fucking prison number on it. That's what they give you when you get out of prison. A white trash bag with your number and your name. And he's walking down the street, and we're like, we picked, we're like, Mike. And he's like, dude, boom, that was it. Like, he knew how to do alarms. He knew how to hotwire cars. He was like the master guy. Yeah. So anyway, we started doing vacation homes. We would get gun collections, coin collections, TVs, VCRs. I mean, I know nowadays stealing a microwave sounds ridiculous, but you could get fucking 30 bucks for it, you know, in 1991. TVs, you know, just whatever. Sometimes they're a motorcycle or something in the fucking shed, you know. Mm -hmm. You could sell that or a generator. So we were hitting homes. And then we, we graduated to uh, businesses. So then we went, like, a oh, great story, dude. Champ Sport Goods in the big independence mall. We fucking got a box truck. We pulled up near the back where the dumpsters are around the malls and stuff with, like, those, you know, concrete walls that kind of hide the back. And then I, we had a fucking car that was, that was like, we faked that it was broken down so mm -hmm. someone could be, like, a lookout. But anyway, we, like, tricked the alarm out, went in there. We stole, this is 1991, starter jackets were fucking huge. Starter jackets, Michael Jordan's, Patrick Ewing shoes, uh -huh. and like G-Shock watches I think just came out. So we're beyond the set your limitations. You can't get busted. Oh, fuck. Those. I already did time for this shit. Oh, yeah. perfect. For champs. I want my <laughs> I'm not going to mention any name brands that I didn't go to prison for. So, um, but dude, like, so like, we stole $10,000 of like a whole box truck. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't, I will never forget to, I had this, I had this house right near the river, Kayford River, downtown Wilmington. Near all the clubs, it was really cool. And fucking, dude, living a life. I'm 17, 18. I got a new stolen car every week. Like, my, like I'm in a metal band, I'm banging chicks. Hell yeah. I'm living downtown near all the clubs. We, you know, we all got in, even though we weren't 21. Mm -hmm. And like fucking stealing for a living. And I never forget, we fucking went back that night and we put all the starter jackets in a pile. And my buddy Tim, the welder, was this little guy, like 5'4. He jumps in, he starts swimming. He's like, <laughs> Swimming through a pile of surgery. Like he's living the life. It's fucking dude. Like it's the greatest thing he ever did in his life. So then we like we cut up in the back of ATMs, we fucking sliced into stores. We started getting better and the big the big thing we started doing was like restaurants. So like Olive Garden, mm -hmm. Applebee's, fucking what's the fucking Australian one? Outback. Outback. All those fuckers, they were popping up. And so what you do is this is pretty good. One of us would have to volunteer to get a job. You go in, fake ID. If they even checked your ID, you put a fake name down. You wash dishes for a night or two, right? Or busboy. You fucking, you're in the back. Case of joint. You're looking Case of joint. What, what, what yeah. where are the words to say? How, how does the manager operate? Yep. The office. What's mm -hmm. the office? Then you just disappear. Totally case it. Yeah. Right. So we'd wait a couple of weeks. You know, you never went back and got your check, right? They didn't know who you really were. <laughs> but you wait till a holiday weekend. Like Memorial Day, July 4th, whatever, three, four days, they're gonna have all this money. And mm -hmm. then they're, they're gonna take all the money to the bank on the Tuesday, right? And back then it still was like 70% cash, 30% mm -hmm. credit cards. Yep. Now, it, you know, now it's reverse, you know? And so we would hit these places. We, you know, we'd go in through skylights, we fucking do whatever. We'd get inside. And even if it, like the door, we'd get inside somehow and trick out the alarms so that it, the alarm only went off when we left. So we'd all get in. So was this after hours? Oh yeah, always oh, after hours. Yes, yeah. okay. we did. We did nothing. Work. Nothing in the daytime. Always no, after we're hours. pure thieves. Yeah. Well, we didn't want to hurt anyone. Right. 
you know, it was all about the, all about the material goods. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some hairy situations to, where we would get into a house and we didn't know someone was there. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, there was, we got shot at by shotguns. Oh, man. Fucking, you know, breaking into like a yacht. We didn't know that the guy was actually in like the house. Oh, Jesus. Stuff like that. That was kind of crazy. So okay. we did, we do those. Yeah. So we get to restaurants. We would get in. You, you, you go get the dolly that they use for beer. You use right. all their own equipment. Right. You get all their, their rag, the bags, you know, like Synthus or whatever. Those companies that pick up the rags and the right. aprons. Yeah. You dump out all the shit. You put, mm -hmm. all, the, you put all the liquor in. You wipe out the whole bar. So you got all the liquor. You get all the loose change. You get the safe. You mm -hmm. put the fucking safe on a dolly. You strap it to get everything in the door. Mm -hmm. Anything worth money. Sometimes there was a merchandise in there, whatever. Mm -hmm. You fucking, we'd have walkie-talkies. And then one of us would be in a, a stolen SUV outside. And we're ready to go. SUV pulls up. Then we open the door. Yeah. Then the alarm has to go off. You got six minutes. Look out for you again. I don't know. Right. You know, and we would fucking load that motherfucker up, be out of there in two minutes. Mm -hmm. And we would, we have this fucking little swamp area where we would take the safes. We had the oxygen and we would come up with the torch and just leave them out there like a little safe graveyard. Mm -hmm. And the biggest one we did, I think, was a place called Romanelli's. It was an Italian chain, like an olive garden in the south. And we got 30 grand in cash. And like 12 grand receipt, you know, credit card. Dude, it was four of us. Fuck, dude. Oh, yeah. Eight grand, you know, seven, eight grand each. Yeah. I'm fucking At the ball. time, yeah. Ball, oh, man. yeah. 18, you know, like, you know. And then also, we didn't, we, I could hotwire a car. Mm -hmm. And we stole cars. We would use work cars, right? You get a mm -hmm. truck or a car to go do a crime and you drop it. Mm -hmm. But fuck hotwiring a car. Why don't you just go to the dealership? And bring it to the office where they don't have anything but paperwork. And go to the key box. And go to the fucking goddamn cars and drive the motherfuckers away. So, like, we went to a Volvo dealership. And this is all on record. Fucking, we go to the Volvo dealership. Like I said, there's no alarms on the things. Mm -hmm. You know, and it wasn't until, like, the mid-90s where they started having security mm -hmm. guards kind of full-time. So you go there and you're like, you know, we break into a fucking window. Mm -hmm. So we do that. We go in there and we're, what the fuck is it? It's a stupid metal box that you could buy at Home Depot mm -hmm. for fucking 20 bucks. That you can... Crack open with all the keys with all the tags to every fucking car on the lot, and we drive off, <laughs> dude. And also another thing that's important is that I I never did drugs. I never even smoked a joint when I was young. Uh -huh. We weren't drug addicts. We weren't. You know, I mean, we're like right. we got we had professional. We had gloves. We had fucking black clothing. We had hoodies. you were straight, or you wouldn't have pulled this all off. That's what I did. We were sober when we went out. We're straight we as hell. Every we had every time we went out, we had uh, we would throw away our boots so they could never track our footprints right. to our house, the boots in our house. That's usually that's usually how people fuck up. They're yeah. whacked out on drugs that's and right. they make mistakes. That's, that's right. why you were successful. <laughs> I mean, number one, when I once I got to prison, they they, they uh, went to a psychiatric counselor and they said I had uh, I was an adrenaline junkie, and also I was like, against the system. It was like getting over on the man was half of it. I was making a living, right, and I was having fun. It was like I'm getting over on these motherfuckers, and so that was like part of the high. You know, mm -hmm. so we stole cars, we did the fucking safes. All right. We did a couple armed robberies. Fucking that I'm not proud of because like sticking a fucking gun in someone's face and seeing them piss their pants. Mm -hmm. and, and like, it, it's not it's not a good feeling. So I have to tell this story. As far as sticking it to the man, we robbed the police station. So I told you I was, grew up on Thompson Island. Dad kicked me out. Then I went to Wilmington. So it's a couple years later. And we're doing those vacation homes and stuff. And, you know, like I said, we escalated the bigger things. But my fucking, my crime partner, Mike, was like, it'd be fucking cool to rob a fucking police station. So we found this police station. It was a small 
uh, community. So they had a secretary and cops there in the daytime, right? But, you know, it's not like a big one in the city, like a front desk sergeant is bustling all the time, right? right? right. After like midnight, or after like nine o'clock, they sent up the secretary home. He did it, a... It was unmanned. He did a assault on Precinct 13, That's right? right. So, it, <laughs> so the three or four cops that yeah, were on duty yeah. would be, they'd be out roving, right? And mm-hmm. the, uh, if there was any calls, the there was like a yeah. machine that would kick it to yeah, the car. small precinct, yeah. That's right. It was actually like a double wide trailer. Oh, God, Lord. But we, all we, right. they all left. Yeah. They don't have a fucking alarm. We watched them leave. We went right up with a crowbar, popped the front fucking door. We stole their guns, their can- spy cameras, fax machines. You know, it's so funny to say that now, but fax machines, computers, all that shit. We stole everything. Uh, what we got a couple of shotguns and pistols, whatever. That was kind of just a fuck you. That was fun, right? Even though we, we sold some of that stuff, we sold the computer. I think we threw the fucking fax machine off the fucking Wilmington Bridge in the Gateway River ah! for fun. But we had the guns, right? And we always liked guns. We kept our guns. We always carried guns. And uh, so that happened. We're, doing, we're, we're escalating. We're escalating. We actually had plans to start robbing banks, which would have been forever. I mean, I, we, we probably should have been dead. So we were finding, like, Leland, Winnebo, fucking Sneeds Ferry. There was these towns around that had small, smaller towns, and we would find banks that had fucking railroad tracks near them. Mm-hmm. So that when you time the trains and you were on one side... right. And you know what I mean? Cops couldn't come. We were getting pretty good. So we were about to start robbing banks. And what do we do? Me and Mike, one night, totally sober, one in the morning, we had, we went, like, we robbed some place. I think, like, a lawyer's office. We got, like, there was some cash in the safe that we heard. Stamps, cat, like, we got fucking a thousand bucks, and we sold stamps and shit. And we come home, and we're kind of bored, so we're like, hey, let's go shoot those guns. So me and Mike get a couple shotguns that we stole from the police station. Took them out to a industrial park. Mm-hmm. Totally empty. It's two in the morning. And and it was a dead end road. Get the guns out. We're about to walk into the woods. In North Carolina, you just walk into the woods and you shoot trees and shit, right? Mm-hmm. There's like there's like, you know, these trash pits with old fucking washing machines. Right, right, right. You right, have to right, practice right. your guns. So we were going, you know, we're just bored, totally sober. Fucking a New Hanover County Sheriff. Um, and says, shines a light, going, oh fuck. I got long black dyed hair. I am in a metal band. My buddy Mike has shaved head and has like a prison tattoo. We got starter jackets on and fucking Patrick Ewing shoes. It's like, you know, it's like 1991. Like, <laughs> yep, yep. Like, what the fuck are you doing out here? And, the, you know, so he get, we're like, you know, it's funny though, because he didn't even like get rattled at the gun. Because it was like, oh, your kids with guns are going to go shooting at night, whatever. Like, it wasn't even like that crazy, but he goes, an alarm went off down the street at a windshield factory. It ended up being a false alarm. This is how fucking random it was. And he goes, uh, do you guys have anything to do with that? We're like, no, sir. We're just like, we, we, our, our grandfather or whatever gave us a gun. We're going to shoot him. Oh, okay, that's a little weird. And he looks at us and he goes, can I search your car? And, you know, first put the gun away. Okay, cool. Can I search your car? Okay. What else am I going to say? Dude, fake license plate. Oh, Jesus. Burglary tools. I think it was three microwaves. Remember fucking radar detectors on your dash, how fucking big they were? Fuzz then? detectors, yeah. Fuzz dude, detectors, and there was like yeah. high-end ones. There was oh, yeah. We, Fuzz dude, detectors, oh, oh, you I bet. Can't, I can't even remember how many fucking radar detectors I mm-hmm. fucking bashed out of fucking uh, cars. Mm-hmm. I had like six radar detectors in the back. Oh, yeah. He sees all this shit. And he goes, mother. So he goes, get in the back of the car. Sheriff Cruiser. You know, no, no handles. He runs the shotgun. Serial number. Comes back stolen from a fucking police station. Three counties away. Or two counties away. Mm-hmm. Comes over and he's like, fucking... You yep. always fucked up. That's it. Right? And we're and, and I remember it was fucking like it became dawn. He made a call. I 
and I just these cars, these car, these cars start pulling up. I should back up a second. This is a very important fucking thing. I always carried a fucking Beretta 380. It's just a nice little compact gun. He put us in the back of the car, Greg. This is like fucking life changing. Yeah. He didn't search us. He just thought that was the shotgun that we had. I had this Beretta in fucking my pants, right? Mike looks to me, and it was just a screen, right? It wasn't plexiglass, it was like just the mesh, right? And he goes, give me the gun, I'm gonna kill him. Oh, Jesus so Christ. You know, he was, whenever he got back in to make some more calls in the front seat, he was mm-hmm. going to shoot him back of that. Mm-hmm. And we could have kicked out the fucking windows. And I said, I looked at him, I said, you can't do it. He goes, I'm going to fucking kill him. So I took the fucking 380 out, dude. And I was cuffed in, I think, in front of my, not in the back. And I fucking reached around and I threw it under the seat. Oh, man. The front seat. Like, way under, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny. Like, the, the cops will clean their cars out every week and they find all kinds of shit under there. People threw mm-hmm. under there. And I was like, you can't do it. And dude, that would have, if I would have given him that gun and he would have killed that cop, we would have gotten away, right? But mm-hmm. I'd be fucking, I wouldn't have been caught, right? And I'd be right. in fucking wife in prison right now, we're killing Right. So I threw that under there and he like, was like, he was disappointed in me. The cop gets in, makes some more calls. So anyway, then the cars all show up, all the blues and browns and different fuckings. Uh-huh. We're like, holy shit. These motherfuckers, like, just the shit out of my car, like, alerted like three different counties, whatever. Wow. Anyway, we get taken in, fucking me, Mike, I live with Paul, the third guy, who started selling acid, and he had fucking a thousand hits of acid in the fridge. So he's like, "What the?" F-? So anyway, we're we're all getting interrogated. We wouldn't give up the other two guys. The welder guy, Tim, we were all 18, 19. He was twenty one, and he was having a baby. And we were like, "We got to protect him." So we never ever said his name. I never we never said Paul's name, but he lived with me. They they figured it out. But we were able to make a call, and we said, "Dude, they're coming." So he was able to get the acid out, and we had a. The great place to hide guns is in the refrigerator. Huh. So behind the crisper, right? You could put a gun. Right, you right. Of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. it was guns all taped in the back of the fridge. Nice. He throws those out and the acid. I'm like, I, don't a, I don't fucking do acid or sell acid. Get the shit out of here. So they raided my fucking house, dude. And in my fucking house, starter jackets, fucking closets full of fucking shit. So, and then my girlfriend, who was 20, Mary, was going to school, funny, for like law, and I'm 18. And she's, she shows up at the jailhouse, she's crying, whatever. She thought this whole, all, all those times I disappeared tonight, that I was cheating on her. She never even knew I was a thief. <laughs> oh, wow. Was Wake like, up call. So, yeah. So, and then so my mom, who I hadn't talked to in two years, comes out of the woodwork and is crying. Like, fuck it, I'm in jail, dude. I, so, we did charges, we did crimes in five counties up, up the coast. Mm-hmm. So, Mary and my mom, Got this good lawyer. You should never get a public defender, kids. Never. You gotta get a good lawyer. And this is where I learned this at 18. <laughs> and it's like my mom had to borrow money. Like, and so they took everything I had to do. They mm-hmm. took my cars, my shit. I'm fucking, I'm broke. I'm in jail with a very high bond. I'm facing 400 and something. You know, it sounds fancy, but it's like 400 and something years if you ran them all consecutive of every burglary or robbery. Right, 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 right. And like, so a lot of felonies. But, so they ended up my Mary and my mom ended up raising ten grand. Got this guy Lee Lambert, fucking lawyer, some shit out of like Cape Fear or some fucking you know, or fucking killing time to kill or some shit. This fancy lawyer like shows up <laughs> from Raleigh, and uh, but like he was a high class, and he comes in, but I was in jail. I finally get bailed out, and uh, it's funny because I'd ask my dad, "Can you help out with some legal fees?" And I hadn't talked to him in a few years, and my and my dad said. Uh, 
My dad was in the military and in prison. He goes, you should go to prison, I'll make you a man. I was like, fuck. Okay, fuck you. So I haven't talked to my dad since. <laughs> wow. So I'm 46. I haven't talked to my dad since I was 18. Um, uh, that sounds like amazing career advice from your father. So I was out on bail. Jesus. A couple of months. Uh, I had to go get my hair cut, you know, spruce up, try to get a fucking job, you know, fuck so I go to the court, my aunt, all this fucking plea. I had, but I had so many felonies, dude. There was no way I was getting out of this on probation. Right. And Mike, the guy who had been stolen, uh, who had been, already been in prison, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't facing a lot of shit. And then Paul, my partner, uh, was facing a little less because he wasn't busted with a gun and everything with us. He just lived with me. And then Tim never even got questioned, right? Which was great. He never got charged with anything. I'm not going to give you his last name. Um, so we go to court. I got five years in five different counties to run concurrent, which means you get one five-year sentence, mm-hmm. right? They want, they want to fuck you, it'll be consecutive. Right. And so, and uh, Michael, the guy who had already been in prison, got 10, and Paul got four. And so, boom, there I am, I'm 18, and I'm going to prison. So I go to Polk, which is considered the gladiator camp. And it's, uh, it's a youth prison, so it's 18 to 25. It is just dudes who want to fucking fight and lift weights, and the, the young, you know what I mean? And uh, that was fucking eye-opening, man. But you know, it's funny, my dad had been in prison. I had a couple other kind of like buddies who were already in there, so I kind of got ingratiated pretty good. I, mean, I was 185, I, I, I was in jail for nine months, because I had to go to all these different counties, right, to get like, my stuff cleared up. Right. So they want to send you to the state prison. And I'm telling you, jail sucks. Prison was like great, because at least you get a job, you got regular clothes, you got some air to breathe, and fucking jail, dude, is awful. So I go to go to prison. I uh, had a couple of buddies, and also like it was funny, man. You like the biggest, baddest. Like there was some black dudes in there that were in there for like killing cops, and they were like, "You are moving to a police station? Oh yeah, you got a fun, all right, white boy." You know what I mean? Like it was like I got a little bit of respect. <laughs> uh, it was kind of crazy, and so I went from there to Morganton, Morgantown, which is in the near the near the Smoky Mountains. Morgantown is seven hours from or you know the coast. Mm-hmm. And it's a high, they call it the high rise. It's 16 stories. The crazy people are on 16. Mm-hmm. There's a hospital on 15. And then it's all levels of prison. And you don't go outside. It's crazy. Dude. So it's this high rise in the middle of like this beautiful like pasture of cows and shit and beautiful mountains. But it's this like crazy fucking like Nazi looking fucking hotel, which is, you know, mesh on the fucking windows. And I get shipped up there and I'm like, there's 750 inmates, right? And they're all kind of youth guys. They're all 18 to 25. And I went in there, and my counselor goes, I'm going to put you in the kitchen. And I was like, kitchen? <laughs> Hated working in my dad's restaurant. Right, I said, right, 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 so right. I said, listen, out of all the roommates here, I'm probably one of the few people who actually graduated, right? I graduated high school, and I like to read. I said, how about the library? Is there any openings in the library? I don't know where this came from, like the balls on me. Mm-hmm. The guy goes, okay, here's a slip. But I have permission for some guard to take me down to the library, and you can ask the guy. And I went down there, and he goes, hey, you can, if you want to be here, okay, cool. And I was like, thank God. Because mm-hmm. when you worked in a library in prison, in prison you're allowed three books a week. And if, they, if like they search your cell and you get more than three books, that's a write-up. Right? That's an infraction. Mm-hmm. But as a librarian, I can have a stack. Dude, I'm not even lying with you. I, wrote, I read a book a day. Right? I lifted weights in a great gym. Mm-hmm. It was in a great fucking shape. I lifted weights with this crazy white dude with a fucking Jufro named Joker who had bad Joker tattoos all over his arms from like from like playing cards. Uh-huh. Big motherfucker. And his whole claim to fame 
I don't want to get off on a tangent, but there's so many great guys. His claim to fame was that he did strong armies. And he was so strong, he would knock you out with one punch of the ATM machine and take your fucking money. Jesus. And he was proud of it. Right? I don't want to use a gun. I want to knock you the fuck out with one punch. That was the guy I lifted weights with. It was great. I was fucking in great shape. But anyway, so I lifted weights, fucking Worthnell Library, fucking red every night, smoked black and milds. And when we all had, uh, it was really interesting because we all had one man cells. And you, were, you had your own little bunk, a tiny table that was welded to the wall, and like a little tiny, tiny like shells where you kept your, you get two brown pants, three, two brown shirts, and socks. But dude, that's where I started writing. And I was reading like a motherfucker. I was reading history books. I was reading Stephen King. I was reading, dude, I ran out of books. I was reading, I read Jackie Collins' Hollywood Wives. Oh, God. Dude. Like, all right, when no. you're reading Jackie Collins, man. Read Jackie Collins, and you're like an 18 year old fucking pretty boy. Pretty far down, man. An uh, 18 year old convict. You're like, what? I read mm-hmm. everything in that fucking library, dude. I read a book about, I still remember, I read a, I read a book about Mount Ararat, where supposedly the fucking. Right. Um, uh, the Ark is buried. Like, I was right. re- re- reading everything. Right, yeah. right. So, but I started, I, wrote, I still have it in these notebooks. I started writing a novel, a crime novel. And so, and if, dude, I was telling this to my girl the other night, I ordered some new Donald Goins books. Donald Goins was a very famous black author after Iceberg Slim. He started, he went to prison. He started writing books about just the ghetto. Like Jim Thompson of the ghetto. They were crime books mm-hmm. with that, that vernacular, you know, and, and the, you know, Killers and drug dealers or whatever, and so Donald Goins wrote like a twenty-something books, and then I don't, I don't know if you know who he is, but he was killed at his desk oh, yeah. because he had gotten out of the life, and the people were kind of jealous. Never yeah. solved his murder. So if you ever meet a fucking white dude who says Donald Goins, he's probably been in prison. I read all <laughs> Donald Goins, right? Should I wanted to write, so I was writing like my want to be Donald Goins mm-hmm. novel, crime novel about badass kid, you know, in a in a band, and we're stealing cars, and you know, it was kind of. It was like, it's so, like, nowadays, you would use that real life shit. But then right. I'm like, oh, no, he has that Lamborghini. Not a Volvo, you know, that kind of stuff. But, uh, so I wrote this fucking novel, dude. I was writing letters to my girlfriend twice a day. I still, so I collect typewriters, and I still have friends of mine who, like, skateboarders, and even dudes, not just girls, who were, like, affected by the fact that I went away. We still write letters to each other, because it was fucking so meaningful to, like, for mail call to get a letter from someone. Oh, yeah. It's fucking amazing. You know, like the military or prison. Right, right, right. That's all you're It's a lot, yeah. You know, I didn't even care about a care package with socks and fucking pens in it. Like, I wanted all a letter. And so I did. I wrote so many letters, read so many books, wrote my crappy. It's so laughable to read it now, but it's just so kind of cute now. Mm-hmm. But I wrote this fucking, like, fucking novel. I'm going to get out and be a writer. And so, you anyway, know, I got out of prison for about a year and eight months total. So, you know, like, in state time, you do half, maybe a third, right? And, you know, prison overcrowding or whatever. And I, I had, like, one infraction, one fight or something. But I was pretty well behaved. They did, though. This is back 92, 93. They were offering community service parole. They would come to you and say, oh, you've been in here six months. We'll let you go if you do 1,000 hours community service. What the, dude, you know how much long that would fucking take you to do? It sucks doing 20 hours community service. And I was like, no. So they came to me and said, oh, 500 hours. Well, I was like, uh, no, I'll, I'll stay in prison. You know, and you know what they did? They came back a month later and let me out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was like that was always the trick back then too. Like, just fucking hold off. I'll come back to you like in a couple of weeks. So I get out. So whenever you are in prison and you're about to get parole, they try to transfer you to like the prison closest to your town. Mm-hmm. So as I said, I was like away from the mountains. My grandfather, who I spoke about earlier, would drive down from Cleveland. Dude, he would bring me new shoes, mm-hmm. socks, right. stuff that he could give me. He would drive down every month and fucking visit me. 
uh, my girlfriend Mary, who got me the lawyer, would drive up. She worked at like nightclubs, and she would drive up fucking two in the morning, sleep on the side of the road, come visit me, and always wanted to fuck me in the bathroom. And they, like guards were always catch us, you know what I mean? And like, those are the two people. So he was very important to me. Always supported me. He's like, "What are you gonna do when you get out?" I'm like, "I don't fucking know. Can't get a straight job, right?" But anyways, they transferred me to O two O two five. It's called. It's a little prison in uh, Wilmington, right across from the airport. It's the worst thing to do is put a prison next to an airport so you can just watch motherfuckers take off in their planes <laughs> right. and dream where they're going every <laughs> fucking minute, right? Oh, wait, this motherfucker's going to Paris. That guy's going there. It's kind of cruel. It's cruel. kind of cruel. And they, that, but that's where my dad did his time, and it was kind of like kind of crazy. I'm in the same prison now when I'm 18. When I was 13, my dad was in prison. And I did almost two years. He did a year for killing someone. I did two years for stealing. So, anyway, I got released. I had intense parole, which means I had to be home from, I had to be home um, from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. Unless I had a job. So, I got out, I had this fucking, I had to check in twice a week, do piss tests. It was crazy. And they're like, I said, listen, you had to either go to school full-time or work full-time. I said, what if I do part-time each? So, I went to Cape Fear Community College. I took all the English classes, psychology classes, history, you know, kind of humanities. Mm-hmm. And I got a job at a barbecue restaurant. All right. Yeah, and fucking, and I had a fucking, so you got two parole officers. One's the dude you visit, and then I had this crazy butch chick with a gun. She mm-hmm. would show up, to, and she would show up to your work, and she would, like, check on you to see if you're really there. And then on top of that, when you got home, they would fucking, they would know where your window was, especially if you had roommates. Mm-hmm. If you live by yourself, they just come in. So when you're on parole, you just, it's just like prison. You have no rights. You can't have a weapon. Right. You can't get married. You right. gotta get permission to fucking move mm-hmm. everything, and they yeah. can come in and search and search and seize your house. Right. So, um, but so, and they would toss my place once in a while. But they'd come in and the chick would just, they'd knock on your window, and you have to show your face. They'd say okay, and they check because mm-hmm. they was they were really tight about it. But I found out it's way past fucking limitations. I found out that after twelve thirty, they never really came around, dude. I'm fucking twenty and a half, almost twenty one. Uh-huh. Just got out of prison. Fucking dude, I went fucking. I started sneaking out. Of course, you gotta go party. Oh, gotta party. You're in your twenties, so I got got to. I got paroled. I know. I I lost everything. I'm like this big baller, fucking thief. I got nothing. Mm -hmm. My girlfriend breaks up with me. I'm living with my mom. My mom, I found out later, took my prison clothes and burned them in the backyard. It was like a symbolic thing, Mm -hmm. right? Two months into it, she found me sneaking out. She kicks me out. So then I go live with a friend. And uh, so anyway, I had this whole intense probation. Uh, and did these jobs, and it was like, that was 1992, three, and uh, the next couple of years, man, all those friends I had, some, you know, guys I knew that got paroled, guys that were kind of like looked up to us that would like help fence our stolen goods, mm-hmm. were now getting older and doing crazy shit, and I can't, won't say it, you know, I did a few things while I was on parole that would have fucking totally fucked me right back, and you know, I got out and I had a suspended sentence of like 15 years. So right. if I had fucked up, it'd be 15 years like that. Right. And I did a couple of jobs and I made a lot of money, but I fucking realized like this is fucked. I'm, I'm going to go back to prison, right? Um, I know. So I got to get out of here. And so this is where I was like 21, 22 years old. My fucking aunt, Mary Beth in Chicago, gives me this fucking book. The, the world, the country's best colleges, or the country's colleges. It's every college, right? I started looking through it. And I'm like, okay, I'm an ex-con. I'm on parole. I can't be a doctor, dentist, fucking whatever. <laughs> right, 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 right. So I'm like, what do I always love to do? I love to read and write. 
there was Columbia College Chicago, right, which is highly ranked for creative writing. And dude, it was just like kind of random. My aunt Mary Beth said, "Hey, we live we live in Chicago. You can live in our basement till you get your own apartment. If you want to come up here, done." I went up and fucking scouted Columbia College. They had an open house, dude. I'm like, I'm gonna move out to the big city. So I fucking do it. I fucking moved to Chicago in July, January second, 1996, and went there for creative writing. And it was great. The second semester, I got a job at Granger, driving a forklift in Niles, two trains and a fucking bus. And then I would go down and take uh, classes at Columbia at night. Because I had some credits from, from uh, community college. So I did like three years. And then uh, that was 1999. And I was like, you know what, man? I wasn't from Chicago. So I didn't like, you know what I mean? Like, once I graduated, like, there's nothing here. Mm-hmm. And I had taken some screenwriting classes at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Mainly I did uh, creative writing. I was working on a novel called Fuck the World, which I ended up selling to Spike as, as a, me and my partner, uh, Tim, uh, as a pilot. But it was like my dissertation. And so I was like, I want to write fiction, but I also took screenwriting classes. I might as well go to LA. Mm-hmm. So, dude, I had 800 bucks on the sleeping bag. And I fucking quit Granger. I, I gave them my mom's address in North Carolina to send my diploma for Columbia. You know, because I was like, she'd be proud, right? Right. Uh, that I got it. And, right. uh, and I, dude, I moved to LA. And it was like July, true across country, July 5th, 1999. And like, and I just was just kid just kept writing. You ended up in LA because of Bob and Rieto. How did semester in LA start at Columbia College Chicago? Okay, I'll back up a little bit. Had a great time at Columbia. Mainly took fiction classes. Uh huh. But I took it was actually a production manager class. Okay. But in the description it said literary property option. I was like, oh, you know, as like somebody wanted to be a novelist, right? Nice. A fiction writer. I yeah. was like, what's this? Oh, you know, like, okay, this sounds kind of interesting. So mm-hmm. I took this class. It was not about fucking, I think we did strips and boards, mm-hmm. like two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the rest of the time, Bob had us read Publishers Weekly, Kirkus Reviews. We're making fucking cold calls to fucking Atlas Entertainment. Oh, wow. Kitchen. He had us like, it was crazy. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. This is, it was my second semester. Mm-hmm. So it was fall of 96. And this is back in Chicago. Yes. Okay. And so Bob had been born in the South Side, Italian parents. He went to Columbia uh, in the 60s, and he was in the very right. first you know, Director's Guild training program. And let's, 68 or 9. And let's give a little background about him. This no. guy lived, breathed, and ate Hawaii. Yes. He ended his career there, but, I mean, he worked on the movie Tora, Tora, Tora. As Harold ass- Maul, like he just like oh, Phantom of the Paradise. Yes, the Palma. Yeah, the Palma and Harold Maul was uh, Hal Ashby, right? Yes. Like these fucking like crazy guys. Yeah, had this great career as a product producer, production manager. Worked in PM. worked in TV a lot. He Remington worked Steel. Remington Steel over in Hawaii. Remington did Hawaii Steel, Hawaii Five O? What was the fucking uh, Falcon Crest? Falcon Crest, which was the winery spinoff of like Dynasty or something. Yep. But he had all these credits, right? And as you right. know, yeah, he, Bobby's the joke. Oh, and I fucking say this, I don't give a shit who listens. You know, it's fucking Columbia kids are making their suicide or vampire of short films. Oh, yeah, yeah, Right? Yeah. And it was like this dark, whatever Cemetery shit. movies. You yes. call them the cemetery movies? Well, hey, listen. <laughs> you, you, got your, you got your teen angst or your yep. 20s angst, right? But it well, was like... At the time, in the 90s, it was... And every third film was filmed at the goddamn cemetery over on, you know, uh, over on Clark. And it always had the <laughs> shitty... Um, uh-huh. wing statue on the top of the one goddamn and it would start at the wing statue on the top of that <laughs> one big grave and you're like 
Jesus yeah. Christ, another one. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it, was a great, it was a great three minute movie about how the guy selling you Streetwise, which was the homeless paper. Oh, yeah. You know, Streetwise. You friends with them, right? Streetwise is the homeless paper. Yeah, you're from yeah. fucking the suburbs. You never yep. had any I'm, I'm making an edgy. I'm making an edgy movie. Yes. There was one yes. time, it was great. There was a kid who just, it was seven minutes of him masturbating and then he came and he just no. filmed it. And then, like, everybody Get was like, out. and he goes, what's wrong with that? So, like, this is, you know, this is what you're dealing with. So Bob, being in Hollywood so much, and then going back, back, and he didn't need the work. Southside fucking kid, and his dad was a fucking steel worker, right? And he got out of that and became something creative with Hollywood, so he wanted to kind of give back. And he was just, I mean, the first time I met him, I was like, this guy fucking is different. And he really sparked it, not just guys, also women, but he mainly was like the guy, you know, like he never had a son, right? Mm-hmm. So in that class, it was me, it was a guy named Adam... And then there was Sean Geraci who came out and was here for a while. Okay. There was guys. And so he kind of had this, he kind of collected these kind of young dudes who were, he became a mentor to. Mm-hmm. And he would take us out to fucking strip clubs, to dinners, to just to diners and have coffee. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Bob didn't drink. He had diabetes. He didn't drink. He drugs. Right. Very healthy, actually. Yes. But he'd buy you a drink and he'd buy you a lap dance and he liked to go out and have Oh, fun. he was an operator. He yeah, knew how totally. to operate. I, I don't know if you ever remember this. Dude, I came out to LA in November of 96, my second semester, dude. I'm from North Carolina, I'm going there for fiction writing, but from Bob's class, I called a production company, and they said, okay, we'll read your script. And I came, I fucking flew out, $300 ticket, and met that, this exec, you know, fucking development executive, it was like probably nobody, right? But I thought it was cool, because he read my script at a fucking Starbucks uh, that used to be on La Cienega. And I felt like, oh my God. You know what I mean? It and was like, it. Yeah. It was great. He just like, he made you get into the game, like be real. And he talked about optioning books, optioning properties, rights, how uh-huh. to pitch. He made us, dude, I, and I hung out with him that whole time mm-hmm. from that first, that second semester all the way to 99. So mm-hmm. I knew he was coming to do the program. And what he always said was, no teachers uh, ushering anyone out to LA. Mm-hmm. Can I make a conduit to LA for the kids who mm-hmm. want to go? Mm-hmm. Right? But they want to go uh-huh. make commercial movies, work in Hollywood. They should come out. Well, so the, well, he talked the school into funding semester in LA. Nice. And they gave him a budget, and he had worked at CBS Radford for so many fucking years. Remington Steel, Falcon Crest, Hawaii Five O. The main office was there. He really shot in Hawaii. Uh-huh. He knew the president of the studio, and he talked them. I mean, I don't know how he did this. He he talked into a bungalow. Yeah, them into building a bungalow for fucking seven hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and over seven years it was revert back to the studio. And, and here's what's funny. I remember. So we'd be when they, when in the they, real working lot. When they were building the bungalow, I came out in the second year, and we were in a classroom underneath Malcolm in the Middle. Yes. I came out, and I'll backtrack my story in a second. I came out in February of 2000, and it rained the entire month yep. except for one goddamn weekend. It was that. El Nino. Yep. And it was the river. It, 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 yeah, the river overflooded. Next to it's the part of the river where they yeah. Terminator Two. Yeah, the fucking yeah. Crashed, it was, and that was overflowing. It was nasty, <laughs> and I drove from my goddamn temporary yeah. housing over at the uh, Days Inn. Oh. I was at Days Inn in oh. Glendale and ride on the 134 over every damn day in my Volkswagen Golf, and it's pouring rain. I'm like, God, this sucks. But you know what? I oh, knew yeah. I was learning. And going to get lessons in the basement, yeah. you know, of Malcolm in the middle. And I told, I called home and I said, well, you know, we're underneath Malcolm in the middle on Fox. It's an actual show. Uh, we must be doing something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I'm this, you know, Rube from Chicago. But um, 
I mean, I was I had worked at a video store, Blockbuster. I had read Variety when I was 15. My dad worked for Bell and Howell. He would make microfilm machines um, on an assembly line. He did that for 40 fucking years, and then they booted him. God rest his soul. He wanted to get put up the ranks more, so he was taking classes at Oakland Community College to up his status at the company, and he asked me or my sister, hey, you want to come out and see what college looks like? You know, prep us. So... I go out there and they have copies of Variety and I'm like, oh shit. And I'm, I'm my favorite issues were the AFM issues where they had like these insane movies that they were going to make. Yeah. Canon movies. But they were selling off of Crazy posters. shit. They were selling off of posters yeah, and yeah. like actors mm-hmm. and territories. So I'm reading all this crap and I'm like, I want to make, you know, I was already well, a movie. The shit, I, the shit we grew up on. I was a movie buff. I already wanted to make movies. I already wanted to be Roger Ebert when I grew up. So... I was like, this is my prep. It was weird that I end up going to Columbia College after I was at Oakland Community College. For journalism. For journalism. I transferred over for my four-year school option over to Columbia. And I get to the final semester. And I am thinking, everybody's fighting to get into this class, right? I'm thinking, it's got to be booked solid. And I walk into his office and Don Smith goes, oh, my God. He goes, you have a 4.0 GPA and you want to go to semester in L.A.? (laughs) He goes, you're in. You're in. I said, wait, there's no, like, vetting process? He goes, no. He goes, you have 30 days to get to L.A. And I remember walking into my, uh, I was living in my parents' basement. I was in the, uh, like, John John Wayne Gacy uh, suite, 29 years old, way too old to be living in my parents' basement, white. Shouldn't be living there. Shouldn't be a serial killer. <laughs> and my dad's like, well, what are you going to do with your bills? I'm going to take them with me. That's it. Yeah. I, I I started signing up on credit cards. I took out eight credit cards. And I kept saying, if Robert Townsend can finance his movie, yeah. and if Spike Lee can finance his movie on credit cards, I can finance my life yeah. on credit That's cards. That's I did the same thing. Yeah. Because really? And, and I was here a year and a half, and I had to file bankruptcy. Oh, me too. I bought a car, yeah. bought my stuff. Oh, yeah. Rent, and, then, and, you know, I filed bankruptcy on, like, $21,000. Yep. <laughs> I know. Me too. Me yeah. too. Really right. small amount. And it was here's, here's the funniest part. I go out with this girl that I'm dating at the time, and we go get a drink, and I file for my bankruptcy, and I'm feeling all fucking depressed, right? Like I'm a failure. And I met the old... Derby, not the brown original Brown Derby, the Derby that's now the Chase Bank over yeah. on uh, over on uh, Las Feliz yeah. and Vermont, the one from the movie Swingers, guys. <sighs> I plop in there and I go, oh god, I just filed for bankruptcy, and she goes, your first, and I go, what do you mean? She goes, oh, I'm on my second. Yeah. She goes, I'll probably be on my third. In yeah, and and that was when you didn't have to pay it back. Yeah. Now you have to, yeah. but that was back, you know, easy street, you know, oh, you dude. filed it, you were done. So <laughs> I, I came out here on my credit cards and I remember drove across the whole country. You're going to hear this on a separate episode. My whole story driving across the fucking country on here on the almost famous infamous podcast. Totally. I remember I had to hit the Beverly Garland hotel. It was the first. First class. Yeah, at for for the first class. December of ninety nine. 
Beverly Garden Hotel. Mm-hmm. Beverly Garden was famous for like B movie actress. Yeah, and they had all her posters like Swamp Things. So that like, so that was your date. The, yeah, it doesn't. She was still alive, and her daughter mm-hmm. ran it, and she was great, and they had like a great cafe. So they fucking had two hotel rooms. Uh-huh. With a fucking door knocked out between. Yep. One was a computer lab, one was the office, and then uh-huh. they used the little conference fucking thing for the guest speakers. Yep. And uh, I moved out. So yeah, back to back up. Bob really saw after a few years. I want to go out to LA and start this thing. And Don Smith was a great ally. Doreen Bartoni, some other people like really said, "Hey." So the school said, "Fuck it." And President Carter, for all the shit he got or whatever, was like very smart, right? He oh was, yeah. He was a creative guy. Oh. Yeah, I think he might have been the first black president of the college too. But just a great guy, saw that Bob had a thing, we needed an L.A. presence, there was really no other schools, and the fact that Bob had that in at CBS Radford was like, what? Yeah. Like, you do, even though you were talking about we had like a basement fucking thing, and we were under Malcolm in the Middle, our office was next to a casting office. Oh, yeah. There's a production office. Well, here's the key. And you see, and and, and Bob, Bob, Bob would say this, you know, kind of lackadaisical, he goes, I don't know what happens on this lot. If no. you walk around here right, right. and you drop your resume at one of the Will and Grace, you know, at one of, Will and Grace is being filmed there. Home Improvement, everything's being filmed Not there. The yeah, um, if you if you walk into one of the production offices and you drop your resume at them, yeah. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. And there were a few people that got solid gigs oh. off of walking in. That was the thing. It was the access. Yeah, yeah. The access and like so, you get the job in the mailroom. A job in security. Damn job right. In a minute, because my yes, I'll talk about Tim. Security, mailroom, a PA job. You know how many kids fucking got jobs in one race? Oh jobs. yeah. You know, it was just great. Fucking Bernie Mac show was there. I mean, you just it's like CBS Rappers a great. Your job. first entry job in Hollywood was very important back then. A lot of sitcoms, but also they had usually have like a couple good dramas, and mm-hmm. sometimes like Kevin Smith did some movies there. So like they did uh, my Big Mac Creek Wedding. Like yeah, they did movies on the lot mm-hmm. too. So it was great just seeing that. But yeah, dude. Slipping your resume, so many kids got fucking jobs. That was so important. Just yeah. there. It gave you this kind of energy. Mm-hmm. You know? But I, uh, I was, I said, Bob, I want to move to LA. I'm not from Chicago. I'm wrapping up. And Bob goes, I'm starting the program. Look me up. So Bob came out in June, '99. Mm-hmm. Got the hotel. I move out in July. He's like, come, come, along, come hang out. And he let me sit in on that first thing. Uh, and my wait, my mentor is Bill Kelly, who won an Oscar for Witness. That was like that was one of his old buddies. He did a pilot with, brings him in to speak. Agents, producers, even like even just the first class, it was like, oh man, you're like from. If you're not from Hollywood, you were impressed with those guest speakers. So that was the thing with Bob. It was like it's not academic. It's not standing at a chalkboard. It's not writing papers. You're gonna fucking get a bunch of guest speakers. They're gonna talk. You ask them real questions. Maybe they have internships at their agency. Like let's get you fucking jobs. It's five weeks. And then you got you know you got to write pitches. You're gonna go pitch stuff. It was yep. fucking great, you know. And so you know, like it was like just throwing you into it. And so that after five, but he always said this too. In five weeks, you know, if you're some kid from the Midwest and you love Star Wars, and so you go to film school, but you come out here and you realize it's not for you. That's great. Yep. That's a fucking. Great it thing. is. It's it not is. Bad. It, no, it's, not it's bad. a breakthrough. It's a breakthrough. It's great. Like hey, well then you could go home and fucking you know right. sell insurance or. So that was a really important thing. But we had our own fucking bungalow. Yep. It was fantastic. It was fucking great. It was a couple classrooms mm-hmm. and fucking all the guest speakers got better. Amazing. First it was producing and writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it was everything. And my first impression of Bob was a trip. I love it. I walk in and he goes, so, hi everybody. And he, he, had, his, uh, he had his big shades on. 
Blue blockers. These big, huge blue blockers. Blue blockers. His and, hat. And, and his hat. Remember the and, only jacket? Yeah, scaring the shit out of everybody. God bless his soul. But it was good because he, he intimidated never, He everybody. never lost that AD. He goes, so you made it here. He goes, you have a C. You have an automatic C that you made it here to L.A. You're here to mess up your C. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's fair. And he's yeah, a character. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a total he's character. And so I take the classes. I meet Craig. Craig Craig was Craig was the bad uh, Craig was the bad cop at the time. Louie had a shaved head. Yeah, he had tattoos. He, Dickie, I, I always wore Dickies. I, I was gonna let you say it, <laughs> not me. He had a shaved head. He he he. Very he American he, History X. But he, I was yes, he, he was very American History X. And then there was the Boy Scout uh, Louie, yeah. who let everything go. Uh, it was kind of it was kind of good cop bad cop. And there was a part called Coffee and Trades, uh-huh. beginning of every day. And we would read Variety. We'd read articles out of the Hollywood Reporter. I learned more in five weeks than I learned in three years. It's coming back to me now because he always, dude, the first couple of years, he always said, I want to teach classes about above the line. That's right. Right? Like, this is probably, if not number one, number two thing, he goes, you look around on a set and you see a 50-year-old dude carrying cable. Oh yes, yeah, the you worst. Don't want to be that guy. No, you no, don't. Listen, there's nothing wrong. Like, no, it isn't. I've worked a lot in this business. Yep. Rips, fucking mm-hmm. carpenters, fucking. I mean, the, mm-hmm. you need those guys. I need mm-hmm. the fucking. I need the caterer, right? Yep. The fucking crafty, like every dude. I transpo. Like I love those guys, and they make the shit work. Mm-hmm. But he goes, "Do you want to be that guy, or do you want to be the guy behind the desk, right? Sharing the profits, right? Which is mm-hmm. above the line is producer, right? Director, mm-hmm. writer, actor, right? And mm-hmm. So, create things. And that was something that Columbia didn't do. Columbia was a very great technical school. Right. That, you know, and film, you tech, sh- film tech. Film tech. Film yep. tech. You shot stuff. You did audio sound. You could go be a great boom guy. Right? But yep. they weren't teaching you to go to Publishers Weekly. No. Nope. And, I mean, if you watch Kid Stays in the Picture, which I had Laura watch, like, he got, you know, he got the rights to the detective. Mm-hmm. Right? For 5000 bucks, And then Sully and Sinatra wants to do it. And they're like... He talks about material for the Godfather. He talks about material. It's for the all first about IP. Half of the fucking movie. It's all about in the IP. first half of the book because I read the whole book. You you own IP. It's the it greatest thing in the world. So I move out here because I got offered a PA job to be a runner for tape. We had to run fucking shit. Oh yeah, before, yeah, yeah. Right before digital, and I'm like, take this. I'm gonna take this eight dollar an hour job because she said, cool. And Bob goes, don't take the job. Come here, work fucking nine to five. Uh-huh. Go home and write. And you're like. Dude, he fucking made it for me, right? And I was like, okay, great. And he goes, you know, you'll fucking make whatever. I'll try to get you a raise, whatever, but like, you can pay your rent. So he did that to me and he did that to Louis. And we both wanted to be right. He eventually did it to me. Go yeah. on. So that was kind of great. So it was like, mm-hmm. don't go get a fucking production job and this job or mm-hmm. assistant job or you're going to work 18 hours a day. If you want to be something like a writer, director, whatever, you got to go out and you got to shoot, you got to write, yeah. you got to do auditions. So don't take, it's better off to take a fucking job at Starbucks. Yep. If you can have time to do your craft, Dude, the industry. You really think back of like you know now it's fucking twenty one years of like how many of those speakers hired kids as assistants, yep. helped them with internships, yeah, you know whatever, you know wrote them a letter of recommendation mm-hmm. or just had coffee with them and like sent them in a certain way. I mean, you for example had this journalism degree, and I remember sitting that fucking in my front desk, and, and you were like sitting next to Bob's desk because he would look at everybody's resume. Resume was a big thing. Yep, take off the fucking objective, name, phone number. Email, 
address, mm-hmm. fucking what are your real jobs? And he would say, take off this fucking short film shoot from fucking, yeah, that you yeah. shot in the fucking, uh, you know, uh, fucking uh, Naperville in yeah. your cemetery yeah. film. Put on fucking Starbucks. Put on Office fucking Depot. Put on the fucking cement yard that you have a real, McDonald's. He would tell people, like, I was yeah. like, shit blew my mind. Real world. He's like, because that's real world. And he was looking in your resume and you had a fucking, uh, uh, Two years in journalism. Or I, more? I I I I had ran my own magazine back yeah, in Chicago, no, yeah. and like, I remember I remember yeah. it, it was the, it, it, he always had the interview the week before the end, yeah. week four out of five, and he comes in, he goes, he goes, he goes, he goes, Craig, he goes, why are you working on this screenwriting bullshit? He goes, you're a journalist. He goes, you can be respected in this town. I go, I go, I gave that up to come out here. I said, because I don't want to be the next Roger Ebert anymore. I want to, you know, make movies. He goes, he goes, no, 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 Greg. He goes, everybody wants to make movies out of here. He goes, you'll be respected as a journalist out here. He goes, you need to switch gears. And he goes, where do you want to work? I said, Hollywood Reporter of Variety goes, well, call him. I go. Well, I I, I don't see any one ads. He goes. He goes, he goes. One ads. He goes. You can't wait for one ads. He goes. He goes. You need to cold call them now. He goes. I want you to go in the next room. Yeah. There's a phone in that. there. He goes. I want you to look up their number. Yeah. He's yelling at me, yeah. Craig, in the interview. He I goes. He goes. You need to fucking call them now and get a job. And I walk in there and I cold called. Hollywood Reporter, they're like, we don't have any internships open at this time. And I call up Variety, and they had a paid internship, and I applied. And I sent my resume in. And then I'm going to actually have Doug Galloway, who hired me over there on one of these podcasts. He answered the phone, and we'll tell, I'll tell the story then. But he ends up hiring me off of that phone call and the next phone call. So you'll tune into the next I re- one. Dude, I, I remember that. And moment. it was insane. It was insane. Oh. Off of two phone I calls. I remember saying, and you were also, yeah. to, to talk about you, you, and there was a few other people in the class that were like a little older. And you were, you know, because I was 26, mm-hmm. right? And because I had... A, I was 30. Yeah. But I was still, 30. Well, you know, I had a little, I had a little yeah. interruption in my life. Mm-hmm. Went to college a little bit later. And I think that even just a few years later, cause yeah. I, you know, you take it more serious. And you had like this journalism degree... And he was like, yeah, what the fuck? Every other kid's chasing that one thing. Yeah. You got this niche, and that's another thing about Bob. Yeah, I mean, and I tried to take that on everybody else in the program. It's like, listen, everyone, everybody wants to come out and be Spielberg. Yep. But you know what? Everybody comes out, not just Midwest, but from the rest mm-hmm. of the country. What's an agent? What's yep. a development agent? Yep. You know, what's like, you know, all these different jobs yep. that you don't have mm-hmm. no clue. Oh, Bob you know? said, he goes, you're lucky. He goes, you have another skill. He's like... Go do this. Go do this. I remember he sent you to the next room. And I I don't remember. It might have been like that afternoon. We were like, oh, we got this interview. I did. I had an interview instantly. I think you had to skip a speaker to go over to did. And he was like, go ahead. I did. And came back and you're like, that's a whole other story. We're like, yeah, getting a job bigger than you did. I did. I remember that. Yeah. Because you got the job at Variety, Mm -hmm. which we all thought was fucking like studly. It was. It's so fun, you know. I had a great, I had yeah. a great four-year tenure. Yeah, it was you, fantastic. No, you went there, like fucking. Okay, this is cool. Yep. Right. Got, and then the other fucking success story was my former writer partner Tim. Fuck Palatine. Yeah. Right. High school dropout. Got busted for the feds for fucking selling steroids. Fucking didn't, couldn't even know how to read. Right. But he loved movies. He was kind of like I like I love literature and books. Mm-hmm. Tim loved movies. Right. And when I, like, I was reading out my ass when I was four years old, mm-hmm. Tim was like, fucking, you know, fuck up. 
Yep. It was kind of funny. And then, but Tim fucking went to Columbia. He mm-hmm. always told me this. He goes, I learned how to read by checking out all the scripts from the Columbia Library. Yep. And spending t- hours in the Columbia Library, which I always did. I loved it. Up on the fucking whatever floor of the 600 building. And, but he, dude, and so he wrote, he spent his whole fucking four years reading scripts and he wrote this great script that was very much like the movie The Cell. Mm-hmm. And he sold it out of the fucking class. Option it to fucking Village Roadshow at Warner Brothers. Dude, this is like the second class. He sells this fucking thing. And then like two months later, The Cell like gets fucking greenlit yeah. and like it killed his movie. It was about a you know, guy hunting demons uh-huh. in someone's dream. But he had like, he, this is a beautiful screenplay. Mm-hmm. And then I remember, that's how I met Tim. And we had a relationship. And so let's let's move on to the fact that a lot of you know like friendships got formed out of that. Me, you, there was a guy named Miro. There was Louis. And there was a guy named Brendan. Oh, yes. And we all formed this crew, and we all hung out at the Red Lion over in uh, Silver Lake, German Bar. Is this still open? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and and just just piano, just a just stories. just a testament to the fact of the fact that Jesus for like at least a year going oh. there every Thursday was you'd we'd meet there at eight o'clock and we'd party and we'd close the damn place we we're you know young dumb and yeah. crazy and our fucking thirties and yeah kin- poker, then we had a poker game and then we had a, exactly a poker yeah. game out of it a kinship oh. and. You know, we kept track of each other, what we did in the industry. Oh. We kept track of... Everybody. Shit, in, in, that, in that early years, you were the most successful one. You were going to red carpet. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, and you seemed to love what you did. You were going to red carpet premieres. I was. Like fucking, you know, I like was working it. Everybody was... Bags. Yeah. Like, what the fucking regs were rolling? Everybody was envious <laughs> of me. And, yes, and I would I, say yes. And, and yeah. I, I was having a blast. And then I got laid off. And Bob, being the mensch that he is, took me in in two seconds. He's like, come on back home. I ended up learning how to teach. And Bob gave me this gift that I'll always forever be indebted to him for. I never really taught anything. And he went, oh, no, this is your you're you're going to teach this class. You're going to go in there, yeah. and you're going to you're going to have these world class directors that I know, and I'm going to bring them in, and you're going to go in and teach the damn thing, and I'm like, holy crap! And I did, and it was uh, you know Arthur Hiller, God rest his soul, you awesome. know Stuart Gordon, God yeah. rest his soul, uh, you know Bill all these Duke. Bill Duke, Bill Duke. <laughs> Uh, P- Paris Barclay, who's still yes. working very hard oh, in the yeah. industry on uh, on uh, uh, every Bob, time Bob Gra- Gray's, Gray's Anatomy and all those shows. Oh, yeah. Bob Butler, um, all these famed directors. Bar- Bob Butler did yeah. the Tale of Tail Street Blues. Yes, fucking amazing guy. Just all these world class directors. Yeah. All of a sudden, he's like, "Well, you're in charge of wrangling them. You're in charge yeah. of having them teach these kids." And he gets a. a, a Soundstage on the Bradford lot, and we taught these damn kids how and to do all direct. the equipment. Yeah, because it, it was hiatus. Yep, we would do the, we would do it during hiatus. Yeah, he got fucking what a half a million dollars of equipment. It was insane. Soundstage for free. It was insane to, to at the time. It was, it, it, they they built sets. They used all the old sets. Yeah, USC, you know, had a had a drop on us, of course, but for a but, school of our caliber, we it was more hands on, extremely more hands on. The, the director's right there teaching the student, like, right there. Dude, 
It was, in, it was ridiculous in how USC, hands-on it was. Right? Uh-huh. First. But out of all, sorry, east of the Mississippi? Yep. Dude. Columbia killed it. Then Anderson. Then other schools sort yep. of creeping in and having their L.A. program. Mm-hmm. But even their L.A. programs were like in an office building on Sunday. Yep, yep. Like we were on a fucking lot. Oh, yeah. Bungalow. Yep. Do you know how many fucking kids... Fucking like, because the bungalows would change out with the fucking shows. Yep. So there was Rodney. Remember Rodney on ABC for two seasons? Oh, yeah. And the Bernie Mac show. And fucking like, yep. the, the countless people, the, then Greek on fucking mm-hmm. Spike. This bungalow right next door, they hire, you know how many kids they hire? Oh, they, oh they, they'd walk right Rodney's in. Assistants. They'd walk right in. They'd say, who do you got? Who do you got? Who do you got? Who do you Big got? Big Brother? Oh, yeah. Was yeah. next to us in the fucking that compound. Oh, yeah. Kids would go get jobs over there. Yeah, they'd walk right over. They'd hand their resume over yeah. and go, okay. You're, you you got you got a gig, but Bob would give you the confidence. Like, yes, that's what Hollywood is, right? Yeah. But I'm from nothing. Right? Trailer park, dad in prison, went to prison. Blah 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 blah. I come out like, who the fuck? But Hollywood is still, still in this day, no matter all the fucked up shit going on. Like the last place where like, they don't care where you got your degree from, where no. your family is, no. you got money, you could be an ex con, a fucking ex fucking paratrooper, an ex banker, a fucking mm-hmm. ex trucker. Fucking, you could, you know what I mean? Like whatever, extra. Yeah. You can come yeah. out here, and fucking, and you can, you can, if you have talent mm-hmm. and some gumption, you remake yourself. I was like kind of an introvert, you know, mm-hmm. like this ex-con dude. Yeah, you know, I, I probably intimidated people. I didn't talk a lot, but then I had to learn how to like pitch and call, and like so it, let, it made me a better yeah. person. Well, it made well, me like a like a teacher. And let, let let's yeah. talk about that. So you finish with semester in LA. You're doing well. How do you get into the writing area you are now? Tell okay. us how you ended up at Spike and that then ended up yeah. ended up on Chicago no, PD and yeah. moving on. Okay, of course you know the overnight sensation, right? Yeah. So let's hear it. My so fiction writer. I finished my book. F- FTW. Fuck the world. About these kids who sell guns for a militia. Mm-hmm. Uh, try to get it published. Get some get some nice bites. People like my writing. Whatever. So I write some more, I write some more. 2003 rolls along, and Tim, who had sold that script, had been in development hell. And it was funny, because like, you get a taste of success, I think, too quick, and it kind of like damages you a little bit. So Tim was like a little fucking kind of jaded. Uh, and he had gotten a manager quick, and had got this like you know money from Warner Brothers, and oh, Tim, you know, Tim off. And so I would read his scripts, and I really liked his writing, and he would read my prose, actually. Where me and Tim were kind of becoming like writing partners, and we found... In 2003, we would go to we would go to use bookstores, and I would go to like just to get books to read. He would go to, to find books to option. All right, which sci-fi taught, books. which Bob taught That's right. us. Which, which Bob, Bob taught, taught us. It, I remember those first few years out here. Hollywood Reporter, Variety, everything you read was. I mean, every article about a movie agreement was a novel, yep. graphic novel. That's when Mark, that's when the comic book shit started taking oh, off. Yeah, 2000, 2001. Comic books, novels, life rights. Fucking newspaper articles, fucking uh, you know, blogs started. You know, when the internet was like really kicking in, like yep. websites were like, I'm like, everything's based on IP. Mm-hmm. So me and Tim, that was in our head, right? So he brings me a book called The Psycho Squad, which was an out of print book from 1980. I remember this about psychiatric emergency teams, which this guy Bob Crane was a psychiatrist, and he it was a real it was a nonfiction book. So he was a psychiatrist who was put on a team with a cop. They go to calls, um, not like SWAT. But they would go to calls where there was a psych, uh, a mentally ill person. They could be trying to kill their family. They could be some homeless dude uh, throwing shit at your, your windshield at a freeway exit. Right. And they're trying to deal with these people. 
and the cops always wanted to fucking shoot him, and the psychiatrist wanted to save him. And, we're, and, and Tim goes, listen, is this a movie? And I said, no, dude, this is a TV show. It's very episodic. It's cool. And mm, this is great. Yeah. He had never written a TV script, only features. I had never written fucking a TV script, only features in, in college. That's why I wrote not novels. And we're like, we should write a TV show. Right. So beginning of 2004, we had never taken a TV writing class. I had never written, I had never read a fucking TV script. But Michael Braverman, who created Life Goes On, and was a teacher, right, at the school, he was rep by ICM, and he was teaching, and I said, Michael, you know, can you get us all, all the pilots, like the one hour uh, crime pilots? He goes, oh yeah, and he gave us a stack. Oh, so me and nice. Tim, it was all the pilots Score. that sold 2003 to 2004 season, right? Score. Yeah, and so we had like 50 scripts. And we're reading, so act outs and the page count. I'm like, okay. So me and Tim sat down, we adapted the book, we, we, we chased down the author, still alive in Pasadena. We paid him $500 fucking dollars. He was so excited, dude. His book had been out of print since like 1982. And this is 2004. We give him a couple bucks. We say we love it. We go. We went on right along. Did some research about modern day psychiatric emergency teams, uh, and we wrote this fucking pilot. And it got us our first manager who read the pilot. You know, and like I didn't. We didn't know anybody, but like a friend of a friend said, "I know a manager." He gave him the pilot, and he called me, and I remember he said, "Listen, I have stacks of scripts. I want to hate them. I don't want to sign anybody new because it's more work for me." But I read your shit, and I really like it. He goes, "It says it's based on a book." Is that you guys have the rights? Like, yeah, yeah, we got an option contract, everything. He goes, oh, cool. And I like IP was so important. Yep. So that was it, dude. We we ended up going to a producer, John Baldecki at Sony, and then Darren Serafian, who is a big TV director. He did Swamp Thing recently, but he did the pilot to CSI in New York. TV director. He got attached. So we had, we had like this kind of bite, right? So like, oh shit. So anyway, me and Tim started optioning things, but from two thousand and four. Uh-huh. And that that died. Like Sarifin got busy, the fucking producer forgot about us, but it got us some attention, and we were like, right. "Oh shit!" So 2004, 2008, four and a half years, we optioned articles, books, fucking life rights. Me and Tim were spending money out of our own fucking pocket, and Tim had gotten a job in the mailroom after his fucking script was re- you know wasn't made by Warner Brothers right. at Radford, and then it was a security guard. Mm-hmm. Tim was working fucking security I remember. at the yeah, Radford Gate yeah, yeah, yeah. from 2001 mm-hmm. to 2011. Mm-hmm. Ten years in that box. He chose the midnight shift from 12 to 8 because so there's write. no one coming in. Because he could write. He could fucking write all night. I think we saw each other. Like Tim was very like, he loved, he loved horror and sci-fi and genre shit. And right. he was a I remember, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Like, not, like I love crime, right? But I love like Jim Thompson and Charles mm-hmm. Wilford and fucking David Goodis. I, I love the literature. He was great at structure. Me and Tim had a nice rhythm together. Um, it didn't go anywhere. But like, hey, let's let's write some more scripts. So specs, right? Of TV shows are dead. You don't you do not write an existing show. Anymore. Right. You write original pilots. Right. So 2006 was around that time things were changing. Breaking Bad, Sopranos was ending. Mad Mad Men, right? The Shield, and, third mm-hmm. golden age of television, right? You're falling all over those things, the cable shows. Mm-hmm. And Rescue Me was out, which was great, right? So the Warner Brothers workshop, drama workshop. Me and Tim wrote a Rescue Me. And I'm telling you, man, fucking, I, I would have that fucking the DVDs playing in the background. Can, 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 can I tell a side story? Yeah. So, <laughs> you little Sex in the City bitches and your little Sex in the City parties that you had around that time. We had Rescue Me parties, okay? We would watch The Shield. Remember that? Yep. Yep. We'd watch the, 
you 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 girls thought you had it great. <laughs> All us dudes drink, drink champagne, drink a shitload of beer, like yeah. insane amounts of beer at Craig's place. Folding chairs, I know yeah, I'm yeah, bunch of writers, Hollywood fucking wannabe writers. But no, it's education. You're watching it. You're like, holy shit. Main reasons I fucking signed on to do SWAT years later because Sean Ryan was a showrunner. Yes, a yes. And I was like, I gotta work for this guy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so uh, when we wrote a rescue me because you had to write a spec. It was a great rescue. Me. We send it in mm-hmm. to the. And it would think like June or whatever was the like, deadline. We get a. So then there was a, there was a fucking a paradigm. There was an agent who was very high on us, or, or well, actually there was an assistant. And we kept sending him our scripts. And he goes, I'm trying to get my fucking boss to sign you guys. Well, I think his name was Zadok Angel, uh, with two L's, at Paradigm. He's not there anymore. But the assistant I was friends with, he was, I'm trying to get you, you know, you guys are great. So we like, we had this agency in, we sent it into one of the workshop, and then we get, a, our manager was like a feature dude, wasn't great at selling his TV stuff, which is funny because the first thing was a TV script. But it, but it went to a feature producer who had just happened to have that TV director friend. But he didn't have a lot of in. So we said, dude, we're going to fucking get rid of you if you don't give us a TV agent. Because we, you know, we're writing more pilots. And this is where it's at, right? Breaking Bad. All this shit's coming out. Like, this is where it's at. We want to do this stuff. Dark, gritty, novelistic chap- you know, right. chapters that tell stories. Right. So anyway, he goes, okay. So he hooks us up. And I'll say his fucking name, Greg Silverman, who's now at the cartel. Greg Silverman was a TV Agent, uh, agent or manager at a, at a company on the west side, mid-level company, whatever. We get a meeting with him. He read our Rescue Me, and he read Psycho Squad. I think he read a third thing. So this is all one day. We go to meet Greg Silverman, and we go in, and we're like, what do you think about our scripts? You know, we need a TV agent. He goes, I can't help Whitey. This is 2006. Can't help Whitey? Like me, you know, me and Tim are like, what? like, what are you talking about? He goes, no. He goes, listen, to break up a writer in TV, I can only sign Diverse. Because that's all they hire at the staff writer level. He goes, I can't help Whitey. I said, well, okay, well, uh, forget the rescue me. Like, we have a couple of other original pilots. Yeah, they're pretty good. Well, yeah, it's hard to sell a pilot. This is very, dude, this was a, a, this is a very, this is a day that changed everything for us. This is four o'clock in the afternoon. So we had this discussion. Yeah, good. Gives us some notes. Hey, guys, get back to me if something happens or another script. I like, yeah, I like you guys. I like your writing. But I cannot sign you. You are two white men. I signed a... Black lady who was a lawyer and she's on put her on a law show. I signed an Indian dude who was a doctor in India, but he immigrated here, but he can't practice medicine, so I put him on a fucking medicine, medical show. Okay, I can't sign him. And me and Tim were riding home. We're like, can't help. Like we were joking. You know what I mean, like it didn't, it didn't insult us as much as it did. It was like really, you know. And it was funny because we weren't looking to staff so much. We were like, do you like our scripts? Can we create shows? All right. And but he just wasn't interested in anything because we're two white dudes. We're like, man, come on, okay, whatever. Good writing is good writing. So I go home, six o'clock. Tim drops me off. I'm not shitting you, dude. This is how it happened. I walk into my fucking, I had a little gate in my apartment building. Walk in, the mailbox is right there. I unlock the mailbox, always checked it in when I walked in the afternoon. Get the mail out. There is an envelope from the fucking Warner Brothers writing workshop. I still have it saved. I'm like, oh shit, we just came from the shitty meeting. I go in, a little bit nervous, right? Mm-hmm. For a minute, I open it, reject it. Okay, then 30 minutes later, I go to my computer, I check my email. The assistant says, Zadok won't sign you. He did, he's not, you know, he, you're, too, you're too green. You guys haven't sold anything, and at agencies, they want to be making 10%. Mm-hmm. You know? We're like, dude, this all happened in three hours. 
I won't sign you because you're white and I can't staff you. You get rejected from Warner Rose Workshop mm-hmm. and fucking this agent who, like, you know, these assistants, like, saying they're really good, rejects you. I called Tim up. It was like, I'll never forget, dude. It was like a Thursday or something. Mm-hmm. It was 8 o'clock at night. I said, That's Tim, fair. we need to write scripts that we want to write. Mm-hmm. Psycho Squad was kind of like, it was a network thing. We were trying to satisfy, I think, everybody. The, you know, the rest of me was great, but no one cares about specs. It was just that time when that was starting to happen, except for the workshops. But no show gonna give a shit. And I was like, the other thing we had was like, oh, it was okay. We were trying to please all these producers. I said, we need to fucking write scripts of shit that we like. We love hardcore crime stuff. We love the fucking, you love the horror stuff. Mm-hmm. We love this harder stuff. And we also have these, like, you know, interesting backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Let's fucking do that. And so he goes, okay. And I said, my dissertation... Or my fucking you know novel from college, FTW. We should turn it into a fucking script. But the guy, guys, nice. young kids in a militia. He goes, okay, let's do it. And I said, this is what I said to him. We need to write scripts that when an executive reads it, we punch them in the fucking face. And I don't give a shit if they like it or not. But they're not going to be able to ignore it. Right. And Tim goes, let's do it. Yeah. Dude, I'm telling you. That's man, right. I'm, this is not a fucking lot. This is this is all three hours. All those rejections. And oh yeah, so it fueled we, you. It fueled you. Dude, and he had read, like he had totally read my, like, he had you. read my novel, and so and he loved yeah. it. So we, you know, and listen, it was a lot different than the thing I wrote, but we took mm-hmm. pieces of it. And I was also through a really bad breakup, a really bad breakup that you know of. We're not gonna put it on tape. And I was like fucking devastated. I like I was off women for a while. So I was just at home writing, right? And I just wanted to like fucking drink some whiskey and fucking work. And uh, and I fucking sunk into it. Tim sunk into it. We said, fuck it, we're gonna do what we want to do. So we wrote FTW. Then we wrote Stray Bullets, which was about uh, F.M. Deverly, the 18-year-old kid who got the contract. Mm-hmm. We wrote fucking Shadow Wolves, which was a real team of Native, Native Americans who patrolled the border in mm-hmm. Arizona. We started writing all these scripts, right? Mm-hmm. We fired our manager, got a new manager, and what do they do? They actually, not FTW, they sold Stray Bullets. Mm-hmm. So we got this guy, John Brown and Jeff Fall. Oh, I'm sorry, fucking, what's, did the hangover. Todd Phillips. Yeah. War Dogs. So he did, War Dogs was the book, and he made War Dogs. War Dogs was a series of New York Times articles in 2007. Okay. And me and Tim had read them, and we said, let's just, we couldn't get the rights. I actually reached out to Edward Deveroli, couldn't get the rights. We said, let's do our own version, fictionalized. We don't need the rights. Mm-hmm. They sold it to Fox TV Studios. Pancho Mansfield, who's now at fucking uh, well, E1 at Fox, he fucking bought our script. They loved it. And Dave Madden, who's a big guy at Fox, they fucking bought it, and we're like, holy shit, dude. And I, I remember I, dude, when I got that check, I almost wanted to frame it. Like, I needed the money. How much was it? Fuck, I, it was like the first, like, payment. It was like fucking five grand each. Nice. And I, dude, I don't know. I fucking fucking had to get a check. And also, it said box on it. Oh, dude, of course. I almost wanted to, like, frame it. Hell yeah. You know? And I Good job. I so anyway, so we sold that. We uh, got our agent, Zach, who was a Calvin Stoller now. Uh-huh. We got Zach. And... Uh, because the managers usually get you an agent once you get a little bit of action, right? The agents are really going to be other fucking hustling trying to get you on staff. And uh, he sold fucking uh, Shadow Wolves to Curtis Hansen, who won an Oscar for like how much? Yeah. That was our second Big final. guy. Dude, Big he, guy. Went out on a, he went out on a fucking Thursday night? Big guy. Friday morning, he wants to meet I'm like, shit. We go over there like Friday at like the lot across from the Formosa. It's Curtis Hansen, Ted Gold, and uh, it was a development lady there. Mm. And Ted, Curtis Hansen sitting there talking about like how he's going to shoot this fucking thing. And I'm, I'm, dude, I'm like fucking, I had to control myself from like geeking out. Because LA Confidential is one of my favorite movies. Oh, yeah. James Earl is one of my favorite crime writers. Oh, wow. Right? And like this guy is so smart and brilliant. So anyway, it's they, epic. I, it's epic. He had a, but yeah. he had to deal with CBS. He was kind of hamstrung because he couldn't do anything edgy. 
He took the money, right? They had a show out called Three Rivers, which is about Pittsburgh. And right, I remember show. that. And Ten episodes and out. It didn't do well. Didn't, didn't do, do well. well. So he no. made them option. And we were like, okay, cool. And we went in on meetings, and they loved us. They loved our writing. Never went anywhere. Mm. And then what happened was fucking Zach sold FTW to Spike. Spike had Bros versus Joes and fucking you know, all kinds of reality right, shit. Right, I remember that. And they wanted to get into scripted. Sons of Anarchy were coming out, and they fucking bought it, dude. And it was, like, it was and I, I have it right here. We were on the front page of the Hollywood Reporter, October 31st, 2011, which was the last daily issue. Last issue ever. Before it became a fucking glossy weekly bullshit. And I was so proud of that. Spike bought seven comedies and FTW. And like me and Tim were in there. And I'm like, holy fucking shit, this is cool. Bought it for a nice, nice bit of money. Well done. Yeah, so that's our third pilot. So we were told, right, a few years earlier... Not getting enough staff, can't help writing. And we just like we just kept writing and just the writing spec spoke for itself. So me and Tim, dude, we did it all the hard way. We did it the way you're not supposed to do. We never got writer's assistance job. We never got any assistance job. I had the my day job at the college. Cranked it he up. He was in a fucking guard shack for yeah. nine fucking years. Just cranked it up. You know what I mean? So yeah, cranked it out. And so we started getting this attention. Then then so Spike buys it. Spike needs a studio. Right? So they a Fox twenty one comes in that was doing Sons of Anarchy. They want to do the show. They give us a blind script deal. So then we write, up, we write a modern-day penal colony script for them called the 51st State. So we're doing four fucking pilots. Never been staffed. So Zach calls us and goes, this is uh, 2011 June. I had actually taken a two-week break from a semester in LA. And I was at home, and I bought huh. a box set for The Sopranos <laughs> for 300 fucking dollars at Amoeba. And I'm sitting there, fucking watch every episode, front set. And it's like a week into it. And our agent calls and says, um, Rocky O'Bannon wants to fucking meet you. And we're like, for staffing. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah. Defiance is a sci-fi show based on a huge video game that's coming mm-hmm. out. So they're basing it on the video. They want to release it at the same time. And he read your script. And I'm like, Rock- Rocky O'Bannon? I'm like, Sequest? Farce? Oh, <laughs> yeah. You. Right, fuck it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, um, Alienation, which was a great movie. Yes. It was a but, series. But, I mean, well, also, but I'm like... Huge. I'm a crime dude, like huge series guy. Yes, huge series. Like, yeah, I'm like, oh, this guy's huge. You know, great credits. Like Tim was more of a sci-fi guy, so mm-hmm. Tim was a little more geek. But I'm like, still, I was like, okay, yeah. So we go, we meet him at the fucking for lunch. Yep, yep, yep. He sits down, and he goes, listen, they've been they've been around to a lot of uh, sci-fi uh, showrunners. They asked me three fucking times. They finally threw enough money at me. It's a video game, and I said fuck it, and I did the pilot, and I'm hiring staff, and we're like, okay, rock me, but like. Why do you want us? You, he read FTW. Because our pilots were getting around the people. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's a sci-fi show. He goes, I don't want a bunch of fucking sci-fi nerds. And you can quote this shit. He goes, I don't want, I don't want a bunch of sci-fi geeks on my staff. There's a, there's a crime element. There's, you know, there's aliens and there's all this kind of shit. But there's like, you know, some of them are gangsters. And there's like, you know, it's a whole play on like society. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He goes, and I want to have like you guys. And I'm like, and he goes, I really like you guys pilot. Whatever. So we leave. Me and Tim, we're driving away. We're like, getting on the fucking sci-fi pilot of all things because all, all our shit was crime. Mm-hmm. We get, by the time I got home, 40 minutes later, he goes, Rocky wants you. We're like, what? We get to, we had to go to sci-fi, the Black Tower. Uh, let me see at Black Tower. Sci-fi is where we're floating. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We had to go meet the executive in charge. Did not like us because we walk in and we're like, I always joked. Remember fucking social network? The Winklevoss trends? Like, I'm 220, yeah. um, whatever, and there's two of us? Like, mm-hmm. like you know, it was like, um, we're 210, there's two of us, and like we look kind of like we're fucking, we beat you up in high school. Right, right, right. You know, even though we were beat up in high school. And we're like, we're not getting this job. 
by the time we got home from the fucking executive meeting, they offered a deal. And we said, we've sold four pilots. We're 35 years old. Actually, I'm 35. Tim was 33. I'm not a staff writer. I'm not got a USC sitting on someone's couch. I, I make $80,000 a fucking year at, at Columbia College. And I have five weeks of vacation. And I have great health benefits. I'm not fucking quitting. I'll keep selling pilots. Me and Tim will keep selling pilots till we have our own show. He goes, okay. So there's staff writer. There's, a, there's story editor. There's executive story editor. We came in at level three. Like with a nice page check and everything. We're like, okay, cool. So actually, after 10 years, I quit Semester LA full time and Tim quit the fucking guard check. And we went to Finally. We, Rockney was then fired off Defiance and sold Cult to the CW, which was supposed to be a thriller. He goes, come with me. So we go to Cult. Cult was a fucking disaster. Yeah. We did 12 episodes. They aired five and fucking canceled it and they ran the rest of all fucking the yeah, summer they did. on the yeah. internet. Yeah. And we go over to fucking. Uh, Meet with Matt Olmstead. Chicago Fire was spinning off the Chicago PD. Was, they, we met with Matt for a few lunches. And, and okay. they said, if our thing goes anywhere, would Matt be the showrunner? And Matt liked us, and we liked Matt. Uh-huh. So we actually curtailed our pilot kind of to his notes. Well, our pilot didn't go anywhere. Breakout Kings gets canceled. He goes to run Chicago Fire. All right. Right? Then a season later, PD gets fucking spun off. Oh, he knew that we were kind of like more muscular. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd be good for PD. So he brings us in. Nice. We have a great meeting. Good fit. And yes. And so he goes, me and Tim went over the, you know, the Wolf Building Universal. We have a great meeting. We're walking to the parking deck and Matt is texting us like, don't take another job. I love you guys. We're going to make an offer. So nice. a couple weeks later, made an offer. We got in Chicago PD. Wonderful. 2013. Season one. Uh, the first season there was 13. And then they ordered two more. It was 15. We ended up writing four episodes. And by the end of season one, we were executive story editors again. Uh, Wonderful. And there, was, and there was maybe a staff writer beneath us, but everyone above us was fired. Oh, they were wow. turning in scripts that just, you know, some of them were really good writers, mm-hmm. but it's like, you know, you got to get in the vibe of the showrunner. What's the right, taste? Right, right, right. You know, get, you, know you got to get into their voice. You got to play the game. You got to play the game. Yeah, that's right. So everybody was fired, and me and Tim were the only guys left standing wow. at the end of season one. Wow. And we're like, fuck. And we wrote four scripts out of 15. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh, shit. And we were in Chicago all the time. We were like, oh, we f- we quickly learned that like we were kind of the guys. And we told Matt and, and Derek Haas and Michael Brandt, who created yeah. Fire and created all the other things, yeah. who were big feature writers and great guys. We told them, we're not, dude, we're still breaking in to, to our, you know, ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's not about the money. It's not about this. It's not about the credit. We'll rewrite anyone else's script. Give it to us. Right. We'll, we're here for you. And me and Tim would fucking like just grind and rewrite scripts three or four nights over the weekend or whatever. And they saw that and fucking... So we come back in season two, Matt, and everyone's fired. Dude, we're like exec story editors, right? The exec story editor, next level's co-producer, next level's producer, next level's supervising, and then next level's co-EP. That's, that's the hierarchy. He goes, I'm not hire maybe one co-EP to be above you guys, but she was answer to me. We're like, okay, cool. So we go to lunch at fucking Village Idiot, right? On Melrose, and, he go, and we show up. There's all these new writers. They're all like our age or younger. Nobody says they're a co-EP. And Matt goes, there isn't one. I'm hoping you guys a supervising producer. We jump like wow. three lines. You're supervising producers. <laughs> and you guys are the highest guys. So it was, and it was great too because we had our own building. And it was, uh, and we were in the voice building. So it was mm-hmm. two, two stories of the voice and then Chicago PD. Me and Tim heard every pitch. Fucking helped everybody with every script. That's awesome, so we, yeah, and so And PD became a hit. So we were on there for four years. We wrote six scripts a fucking season. We re- rewrote other scripts. I, I wrote 21 episodes of PD. Wow. You know, shared with Tim. 
And uh, I went to I went to Chicago like every two three months. I went more than even the show. To do research, yeah. Yeah, doing ride-alongs, it was great. Mm -hmm. So that was really like my grad school of TV writing, having to rewrite fucking scripts. And it wasn't sometimes the writers were good, but Dick Wolf would change his mind, throw something out. The network wouldn't like it, throw throw something out. So then you had to you know we're prepping in four days, dude. There was they threw out a script of ours, and me and Tim went in at fucking. They threw out a script of ours at six p.m. We would go back to the fucking writers room. We're pissed. Fuck it. We order some lalas. Order some lala chicken salads. Come to the fucking studio. We re-break it on the board. 10 p.m. Tim goes, see you here at 8 a.m. Coffee? Microwave popcorn? <laughs> 23 hours, dude. Not wow. a nap. Nothing. Me and Tim writing a whole new script. We fucking finished it. Turned it in. And, we, and the, the next day, they call us back in the office. They go, this is a fucking the best script of the season. So at, at the end of the four seasons, our contracts are all up. Uh, whenever the showrunner leaves a show... And a newer showrunner comes in. If you're a writer and you're still around, you're kind of looked at as like the old guard, right? They want to bring in their own crew, and you know, and you hear about that, you know about that. So Matt went off to get a big deal at ABC, and so our showrunner's leaving. Our deal's up. Some of the other higher level writers, their deals are up. And you know, four years, a lot of episodes, time for something new. Also, me and Tim have been together now at 12 years. This is 2017, and when you're a writing team, you split paychecks, Mm -hmm. right? So even though you split nice paychecks, it's tough for me and Tim to be helping running the show, and the guys beneath us are buying a house, right? Because they're making twenty four thousand dollars an episode. Yeah, me and Tim are making twenty six, but we're splitting it. Yeah. So I'm making I'm making twelve, right? And so I'm still in my fucking apartment. And then also, and then you you, know, you grow older, you want to do your own thing. So I, I sold this show called Snitch about confidential informants to Fox, and then I went off and I did SWAT, and Tim went off and did his own thing, and we split up. Uh, amicable and I love the guy but it was just like time to move on right? and time right. to get your own paychecks so I went on I met for The Exorcist which TV show on Fox to be a co-showrunner I met at ABC for a show and then SWAT and I was like man Sean Ryan a badass fucking cool cop show this is it and so I signed on that and I was I was made an EP in season 2 did 3 years of that and then my contract was up again they wanted me to come back and I was like and I love Sean Ryan, and I actually love a lot of the cast, I love all the writers. But I was like, I kind of done it. My last episode of fucking uh, SWAT was last year in November, we went to Tokyo. I wrote a Tokyo episode. Dude, I'm shooting a shootout on top of a high rise in Tokyo. Like, I, how can it get any better? I'm not going to top that. And rest assured, Craig will have many, many more projects coming soon, but with the pandemic <laughs> happening, it has shut down a lot of production. I want to thank Craig for joining me on the almost infamous podcast here on the Greg Rivesteck Podcast Network, where I talk to different figures in Hollywood that I have met over the last 20 years. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go to blogtalkradio.com slash hollywoodgreg, where I have many, many other programs. You can also just type in the words Hollywood Greg on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on Spotify, and you'll find shows like Six Degrees of Retro, where I talk with my co-host, Trista, the video vixen Perez, about many movies from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Also, you can join me on Reifsteck Revisits, where I have a nice Prince and a nice david bowie and rush tribute all three of them for you to listen to 
Also, the show Deep Into the Woods, where I talk about old Chicago movie houses in my old neighborhoods. Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe.